Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Uh, today, I want to talk about something that's being in, becoming increasingly clear, uh, and that's it's that the ever-widening political divisions we're seeing today are not the simple binaries. It's not it's not left versus right. It's not socialist versus capitalist, progressives versus reactionaries. Uh, you know, rather, we're seeing something entirely new. I believe something with obscure terms. We've heard of critical race theory, but do you know about postmodernism or intersectionality or queer theory or, or post-colonial theory or on and on and on? Uh, and the, the more I dive into this rabbit hole, the stranger and stranger it becomes. Uh, thankfully, I have somebody to help me uh, help us through, uh, through this maze. Uh, and with me to explore this brave new world is James Lindsay. He's a PhD and co-author of Cynical Theories and founder of the New Discourses podcast and website, and whose Twitter handle reads, apolitical against totalitarianism and supremacy of all kinds for freedom. James, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be here. Uh, James, I guess just in the last few weeks, you've also been tagged as the Donald Trump of intellectuals. Yeah, someone called me that. Uh, <laughs> I said that I aspire to be that, but it's all kind of tongue in cheek. I have this this love of the absurd. I think it's it's rather humorous if people try to give me an insult to to wear it a little bit, and uh, it was intended as an insult, not as a compliment from the person who delivered it to me. So, um, what do I mean by that? I guess why would I aspire to be this? You know, think what you want of the guy. Uh, he certainly, in some respect, was a bit fearless. He would speak his mind, um, whether his mind is polluted or not is your own to decide, but he would speak it as he saw it. And there was a degree of courage, especially at the, the level of platform that he had in doing that. And I think that there, he also had, you know, I didn't appreciate this. I was horrified by Donald Trump until sometime near the end of the summer last year, just horrified, like most people who, who are academic or been vaguely left or whatever. And um, I started to realize over the summer, somehow my wife and I started to realize that he's funny. And he's in <laughs> fact, really funny. That is funny. <laughs> and once you kind of get over the shock, he's actually hilarious. Um, I just saw a clip the other day where it was like, well, can you name something good about Joe Biden? And he just goes, uh, like, you just can't think of a single thing. And the way that he does, it's just the look on his face. It's just <laughs> hilarious. And so I do aspire, though, to be funny and to, to have that kind of like willingness to just say what it is that I think without that kind of hesitation well, well, or reservation. Well, the, thing, the thing, the thing that you're doing is, I think, one of his attractions for a lot of supporters, uh, me as well. Is he is you're taking on uh, uh, political correctness, and mm -hmm. that's right. You know, which is another sort of day to day term for woke wokeism and intersectionality and social justice and critical. I mean, he he took that right on. That's what you're doing. That's right. Yeah. And you you wrote your book. Uh, it's called Cynical Theories, but it's got a great great cover where you have cynical. You actually have critical theory there, and that's crossed out. 
and you've dropped in cynical theory as, as a replacement in the title. So uh, what's the thinking there? Why does this become cynical theory? Well, it's really an interesting kind of line of thought that we had. There are a number of ways that we could we could construe these theories, that these critical theories as actually being rooted in cynicism. And one is that they tend to read people's minds and, and find their worst motivation. So if you disagree with something like critical race theory, which is a critical theory of race, then it must be that you want to maintain white supremacy or you want to maintain racial advantage. You must have this terrible cynical motive. It's a very negative and cynical read. And another one is that it's rooted in these theories that read the history, whether you look at the, the postmodern philosopher Michel Foucault, a French guy, whether you look at people like Herbert Marcuse, he was a German and an American eventually, not that he was ever a big fan of the country. He was one of the big critical theorists as opposed to one of the postmoderns. If you look at these guys and you look at how they read the history of the West, it's always just very cynical. Foucault is easier to lay out. You know, he talks about the history of homosexuality. Uh, his, his, in fact, biggest or maybe most famous work is called A History of Sexuality. And he lays out in that, you know, during the, during the era when Christian thought was just absolutely hegemonic, where everybody had to be Catholic, etc. It was regarded as a sin, perhaps even a mortal sin. And then later it became a matter of psychology. And then it was terrible because it was considered a psychological disorder. And then it was considered, you know, one thing after another. And so he says, oh, it was bad. And then it was still bad. And then it was bad in a different way. And it was still bad in a different way. And he does this whole kind of progression. But he, at no point does he ever say, you know, taking it out of the realm of demons and into the realm of your mind is actually progress. That's actually, that made the analysis better to the point where we finally get to, you know, by the 1970s or so, even when he's writing, the attitude was already growing in society that, that, that some people are gay, get over it. And even that is read cynically if you read kind of the very modern theories, you know, within queer theory or whatever, because in that, all of a sudden, if, oh, being gay is normal in a sense, then all of a sudden it's not productive of revolutionary politics. So you've stolen our seat of power that we had, we had or, or special identity has been taken away from us. So there's always a cynical read on everything it analyzes. And so we just said that all of these theories are at their heart cynicism. Well, your, your starting point's very interesting. You, 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 and, you and Helen Pluckrose, your co-author, were both really defending liberalism, which is political democracy, limitations of powers of government, you know, development of universal human rights, legal equality. I mean, you, you guys are warriors for freedom of expression and freedom of religion and separation of church and state. I mean, all the things that have created the, the, the social conditions for people like, like for the feminist movement, which advanced the cause of women or civil rights. And it seems as I read what you're talking about is that the, the, the French intellectuals which developed this in the 60s and 70s, and I think it was sort of a joke, wasn't it? I mean, they, don't, they didn't really think this was going to have political legs. And then at some point, people picked up these theories and said, no, this is going to be our new theory of political action. And so it morphed from the academia into, uh, into the political arena. How, is that a fair reading? Yeah, it's not a terrible reading. Um, I don't know how much the French philosophers thought that they were joking. And of course, it depends on which one. Foucault had said at one point, for example, that 
uh, everything he did, he did to attract, he was gay to attract beautiful boys. Um, and so, <laughs> so, I mean, how much of that is a thing? There was also a French intellectual tradition that if people could understand more than about 70% of what you wrote down, you were considered not that good, not that smart, you know, you were kind of a, a plebeian rather than an advanced intellectual. So of course they were screwing around with ideas and making things a bit nonsensical, um, but at the, on the other hand, Jacques Derrida, another one of these philosophers complained to the day he died that nobody knew what he was talking about, which implies that he did hope to be taken seriously. Uh, so I don't know how much, how much of that is that it was all a joke and how much of it was that they were very kind of nihilistic analysts looking at a thing through a particular set of lenses, um, but certainly it, it was considered largely in France, it was considered, they were kind of intellectual rock stars, but at the same time by the real kind of French intel, intel, uh, intelligentsia, they were kind of considered passe. But what happened was activists who had already kind of infiltrated, especially English departments in the American universities. It started at Yale University as the first place this landed in their English department, saw this as a very productive tool, a very productive way to start thinking about the activism that they were already doing, whether that's radical feminist activism, the radical feminists were extremely interested because these postmodern theories allowed them to deconstruct the ideas of gender and sex in a way that nothing had done so before. And then uh, this kind of spread from, from that nucleation point into lots of other identity-based activism because it, it turns out to be a very powerful set of tools. So there was already another radical activist tradition that was running pretty rampant. You know, we, we heard about it, we saw it in the 1960s. Um, and that tradition ended up picking up these tools and as, as you said in kind of the intro, created something kind of wholly new, um, a whole new political project. They saw these tools as useful for what they were trying to achieve. One of the you know, just an analogy that jumps springs to mind is it's sort of like they were they were in the laboratory working on this uh, this biological a virus, and then the virus jumped from the laboratory into society, and now we've got this pandemic of these uh, of these terrible ideas. That yeah, that we I think we've we've leveled that metaphor ourselves a couple of times. It's really it seems to be what the case is, and as a matter of fact that that. That virus, I think we called it in the book, in Cynical Theories, we said that it's, it's a rapidly mutating virus, as a matter of fact, because it doesn't have any real constraints on it, because it's all word games. You know, you, you've praised our structure of the, the title with Cynical Theories and Critical Crossed Out. We actually went back and forth between two different titles. And the other is, if you don't know the term, Wittgenstein had this idea called language games. And then the postmodern philosophers picked up the idea of language games quite a lot. Uh, and they wanted to play language games. Uh, Jacques Derrida, who I mentioned, talks about play all the time. And he was obsessed with language. Well, we had thought of doing the same, you know, editorial mark trick where we crossed out, we were going to cross out language and put power. So the title would have been Power Games was the alternative uh, title that lost in, in our little straw poll of like four of our friends. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> well, since it's how... all in language, though, there are no restrictions. So it's able to, as a, as a virus, if you want to use the metaphor, it's able to change very quickly. It's able to adapt to any argument or any challenge that's given to it very quickly just by changing around the way that the words are meant, what, the way the words are used. In that sense, it's very, very, very subversive. So how does this jump into, I've, I've got a book now that I haven't quite been able to read. You've told me you read it for me. It's called uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Now, 
didn't he start life as named James Stewart or some name? Henry like Rogers, I think. Henry Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how did it jump from there to this? And what they're doing with language now makes it almost impossible for us to, uh, um, you know, once you once you've been tagged as a as as a racist, there's no way to get out of it. Right. So this is actually part of the, the strategy that they use with these terms. The first one that this movement broadly construed, which, you know, you could argue stretches back over 100 years. The first one they discovered was fascist. They figured out the power of the word fascist. And um, this was known to them, you know, as soon as Hitler had his rise and Mussolini had his rise. And they saw the, the, the revulsion of the people throughout the liberal West to the, you know, the Nazi regime or the Axis powers, they, they looked at this and they said, wow, fascism has a lot of power in it. And what they said is that communism at the time, this was the communists is intrinsically anti-fascist. We want a perfect liberated utopia for the workers to be all considered equal. It's anti-fascist. There should be no state at all in a communist, you know, you have to pass through the socialist part to get to the communism, according to the Marxian historicism. But on the other end, there's no state at all. So there's no fascism. So they say that communism is the true anti-fascist position. And so what they started to do was anybody who criticized communism, they said, oh, well, you must be pro-fascism because we're anti-fascism. And this trick is still literally exactly that trick is still being used right now. And it still works on people now. Well, the critical race line of thought saw this working with fascism and adapted it around racism. So they came up with this dichotomy. You're either racist or you're anti-racist. They even say, Ibram Kendi in that book, for example, says there's no such thing as not racist. You have other authors, Robin D'Angelo is another very famous one who says there's no such thing as not racist. You can't be less racist. You have this absolute choice between being an anti-racist on the terms that they've set or they're going to call you a racist because you are not anti-racist in the terms that they've set. They lay this out in a, in a variety of different ways. They say that you can be actively racist or passively racist by, by just going along with, with the situation that, that creates unequal outcomes. You, you can be actively anti-racist and they, they describe, and this is in a book called Is Everyone Really Equal? which is also by Robin D'Angelo from 2012, they described that there's no such thing as being passively anti-racist. That would be being not racist and you can't be that. Being anti-racist is an activity. It is a form of social activism that you have to take up. And here are the terms and it's an ongoing commitment to a lifelong or a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process they describe it as so you, it's it's this whole different way of thinking it's different than saying well i i don't like racism what we used to think anti-racism would mean they've co-opted that term in exactly the same way that the communists in the 30s and 40s realized they could co-opt the term uh anti-fascist uh and it's 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 a language game in order to 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 gain power because when they call somebody racist the person gets defensive and they try to hide from it and they you know, decide to like sign over their company to somebody else or something like this, or they resign or they go on the internet and apologize in a public video, which steals all like, once you do that, you've lost all of your standing. People look at you and they don't respect you. You think you're doing something that will make people respect you more by taking responsibility. But in fact, what you're doing is caving into something and it doesn't psychologically we're smarter than, than, than that. So we, we perceive it as being weak and the person being untrustworthy and you sacrifice what's called your moral authority in, in that move, and you don't have it anymore, and it's very difficult to get back. It's kind of like trust. Uh, you sacrifice your trust by caving in. 
And this is the manipulation that they do. And it's funny just to kind of touch on it. When you hold up Ibram Kendi's book and you say that it's very difficult with the language to understand what he's talking about. Kendi's got a further trick. So within critical race theory, they talk about this concept most people will have heard of now, systemic racism, that the racism is in the system. Well, Kendi actually describes that people didn't understand the idea of systemic racism. And they would often ask him to explain what the system was. And so he decided that this was an impediment because people were asking too many questions. So he replaced the term system with policy because he basically believes that the, whatever the policy is creates the system. So then he says, well, policy can be the policies, you know, like in, the, in, in law or policies and institutional policy, but it can also just be kind of the norms of how people interact with one another, how our conversation has, has a policy underwriting how we're talking to one another, what words we're willing to use to communicate, how we're going to speak, how we're going to treat each other, et cetera. And that all of these vague nebulous policies, this is his new word that actually means system or systemic that he's used to, to sub out because people were hanging up on and, and saying, you know, wait a minute, I don't know about the systemic racism thing. And they were challenging his idea. So he just cooked up a new word and replaced it. And this makes reading him and understanding him very difficult. Boy, there's so many places to take this. It's, it's, you know, but they, but they, but it's based on the language that says uh, revealing hidden, hidden biases and unexamined assumptions, usually pointing out what have been termed problematics, which are ways in which society and systems that it operates upon are going wrong. And so he's seized on that and he's painted us into a word corner. I mean, we're now in a, in a place where the terms are all used in a way that we really don't have any way out, except maybe to declare, well, yes, I am a racist. I mean, it's, that's, I think a lot of people are beginning to wonder whether that's the, uh, the line of action, because even, yeah. if you're, even if you're silent, wasn't there a case recently where there was a, a professor at one law school who was... Uh, uh, disappeared because he or she said something to a colleague on a Zoom call about the fact that the the blacks in the law school typically finished at the bottom of their class, made that remark, which was a factual statement. Mm -hmm. And the other person didn't say anything. And then yeah. the line of action was, well, we're going to obviously discipline the speaker, she or he's gone, and they are gone, unlikely to teach in another law school but also the person who didn't say anything mm -hmm. was disciplined and made to yeah. call out and apologize for not speaking up. I mean, where, where are we out now with non-speech is with non-speech you're just as guilty as speech. Yeah. That's, that's actually part of the program that they say that people who have privilege in society must use their privilege to disrupt systems of oppression. So they would have seen that speech that was made as speaking into systems of oppression, regardless of whether it's a factual statement, it doesn't matter because it's used to uphold stereotypes that cause oppression. And so the other person who did not speak did not use their position of privilege to disrupt that system of oppression. That's the logic behind this. This logic has a name though, it's totalitarianism. To be distinguished from authoritarianism, it's far worse. And this is kind of the dividing line that I've seen, you know, I forgot who wrote it first, somebody's much smarter than I am, but they wrote that the difference between an authoritarian and a totalitarian is that an authoritarian is content to let you think and say what you want, as long as you don't insult the regime, but a totalitarian is going to compel you to, uh, 
to support the regime. They're going to compel you to speak out in favor of the regime. And we are seeing actually this compelled speech angle. I hear from countless people in their workplaces, you know, where these various diversity trainings and whatever they call them trainings are coming in saying that there's these compulsions to speak, to admit that they're racist, which what happens then? Does that go into your, you know, your permanent file? And is it the basis for firing you later? Or they're compelled to interrogate their feelings of defensiveness if they uh, reject engaging this this kind of humiliating activity. Um, this this is not a healthy direction that people are going, and they think that it is. And as you said, it's because the activists. Nobody. This is a, such an important point. Nobody thinks that other people are intentionally using words the wrong way. Nobody thinks they're having a conversation. If you want to use the Alice in Wonderland reference, nobody thinks they're having a conversation with Humpty Dumpty. You know, these words mean what they, what they, what I want them to mean when I say them and nothing more and nothing less. Nobody thinks they're having that conversation, but the activists behind these critical theories have figured out ways to use all of the words, many of the words, hundreds of the words, in very specialized ways to where you think they're talking about one thing, they're actually talking about something else. So you read Kendi and say, oh, racist policy would be bad. We should get rid of that. But what he means is even social norms, even the way that we, we what words we're allowed to, to speak and how we're meant to use them. Well, you, you write that it's, uh, they're, they're referring to prejudice on the grounds of race and they define it as a, as a racialized system that permeates all interactions in society and yet is largely invisible except to those who experience it, who have been trained in the proper critical methods that train them to see it. That's right. So you've got this, this, uh, this high priesthood of race that only they know the, the, the magical words, and yet nonetheless, none of us are let into the, the room behind the, the altar, and we're left sort of, no matter what we do, we're, we're, um, it's defined as racist. Uh, no, that's absolutely true on all counts. There is this high priesthood who gets to decide what is and is not racist. I'll give you a look behind the curtain. Whatever it is, is racist. The answer is always racism. It always goes there. An example I give just very briefly that kind of paints that up um, is kind of makes people understand it a little better. As you could imagine running a store. I've given this example a bunch of times. So if you've heard it, I apologize. But you can imagine running a store and two customers enter roughly at the same time. You're working alone one's white and one's black you have to it's maybe it's like a tailor shop and you have to help them for 10 minutes or something you know measure them and try to fit them and talk to them and so you have to pick which one do you help first the white customer or black customer and if you pick the um black customer critical race theory would analyze racism must be present in this situation somehow and they would say well you did it because you don't trust leaving a black person unattended in your store so you have racist assumptions about black people being you know untrustworthy or thieves uh or they might even get even more cynical and say well you secretly wanted to help the white person more so you signaled that by choosing the black person uh to try to cover up the fact that you know you're a racist which is also racist. But if you tried to help the white person first, of course, they would just say, well, you favor white people over black people. You see black people, second class citizens. So that was racist. So everything actually has a conclusion of racism. Critical theories begin with their conclusion in mind and then contort the situation and contort the language to arrive at that conclusion. And this happens, that's one of the reasons we called them cynical, but that's even worse than cynical. Uh, there's sophistry baked into that. There's also just manipulation um, it's more like cluster B personality disorder theories at that point. Well, you and you and uh, your co-author uh, 
are idealists. You believe in liberalism. You believe in social justice defined by liberals. You define in freedom and limited government. And and you know she's she's on the progressive left. I think more than you are. But nevertheless, you're committed to these ideals. As I listen to you talk about the language games and the and systematic racism, this doesn't seem to be about any other ideal than power. That's right. Yeah. I mean, is there anything else that would be a high high ideal that they're aspiring towards it seems to me it's just whatever you got i want it there is actually this is a little complicated and a little deep but it's called liberation let's do it let's go liberation okay liberation is their actual higher ideal and to understand liberation actually requires and you if you will find this in the literature you'll see the people talking about it you can read a regular article written by some of these activists that comes out and you know the New York Times or Washington Post or some mainstream outlet, you'll occasionally run into the word liberation. They're still talking about liberation today. But liberationism was a big movement that started in the 60s and 70s. It had lots of huge liberation fronts that cropped up. Those That's a word that's a little bit ominous for people. The Viet Cong is probably the most famous of these. Yeah, um, that, was, that was my day. Yeah. So liberation fronts, this is what, this is the liberation that they're talking about, but there's this essay from 1969 written by this guy, Herbert Marcuse, that I mentioned before, he was kind of the rock star of the sixties for leftist and intellectuals. And when you read it, what you understand is that liberation has the same connotation as communism did under Marx's historicism. So I've already kind of introduced that, you know, if you don't know the Marxian view of the world, these people aren't quite Marxist, so I don't want to make it confusing or too simplistic. But if you don't know the Marxist view of the world, he believed that history progresses, material history, particularly the economic history progresses according to fixed laws. And those, those fixed laws develop over time so that you eventually reach a stage in economic development of capitalism that goes into advanced and late capitalism that finally causes the workers, the proletariat, the workers to become conscious and form the proletariat. And so the proletariat are conscious, class conscious workers who have now banded together to create a new order, a new order that they're going to do is they're going to seize the means of production, they're going to seize the the control of the state, and that the state that the that state of economic uh, development is going to be called socialism, where the state owns everything, but the workers technically run the state, the proletariat runs the state. And then what happens is over time, as they work out the kinks of the socialist order, Marx believed that they would start to slowly realize that the state itself is superfluous. As you perfect the dialectical materialist conditions, the dialectical materialism is as you perfect the material conditions of the socialist order, the state becomes superfluous and you enter into a state-free communist utopia. Liberation is the revamping of that communism, where now we're free from all forms of responsibility, we're free from all forms of uh, suffering, we're free of all forms of systemic power. It's not just economics for the liberationists. We're going to be free of all the forms of imperialism and colonialism and racism and fascism and capitalism. We're going to be free of all of these oppressive things, all of the different ways that the existing system allegedly brainwashes people into believing that the system that we have works and is good uh, will be free of all of that. And that is actually the higher ideal that they have in mind. And when you realize that it's exactly the same model that Marx used, and if we want to go even deeper, Marx derived it, Marx was what was known as a young Hegelian. Marx derived it from his beliefs on Hegel. Their young Hegelians were radicals who took Hegel's philosophy. Hegel had this idea of the dialectical process that he had. He was a historicist. He believed history follows kind of fixed laws. 
in the dialectical process progresses history. But for Hegel, being an idealist, it was when the ideas of society are perfected. Then, so, th so, so this is heaven on earth for people who do not believe in heaven. That's exactly right. It is exactly right. It is creating the kingdom, but without without the God. Oh my! Well, <laughs> and the the problem though for this, and this is this is the key part with communism, with with everything. I spent decades trying to figure out, literally from my early twenties, trying to figure out why in the world is communism such a like. Why do so many people fall into believing in it? And then I kind of piece together that, you know, it's because it's it's this heaven on earth kind of almost religious view. And then I went further and I started thinking a little more deeply about it. And I thought, well, how do they think it works? How do they, it never works. Why do they think it's going to work? And it hit me, I was driving. I remember I was driving home one night and it hit me that it was like, oh, it's when everybody believes the exact same thing that's when it's going to work when everybody alive is on board so first they're going to try to convert you if they can't convert you they're going to try to forcibly convert you and if they can't or if they can't persuade you they'll forcibly convert you and if they can't do that they'll kill you and then as eventually everybody who's left believes it and then it's going to work that's the mindset and that's why it so reliably leads to totalitarianism where they try to force everybody to believe the same thing and that's why it so reliably leads to walking tens of millions of people into the equivalent of a blender when it doesn't work because it doesn't actually work and they have to get rid of the people who have the wrong think. And I hate to put it this bluntly, but this is the road that this particular ideology is walking. It's not strictly communist. In fact, I don't think it's too capitalist, like embedded yeah. with capitalism. It's too fascist, frankly, in the sense that Mussolini meant. Uh, he said, you know, I, I define fascism as corporatism. It's the corporations running everything. Well, that, that, that's why I, I was open with the fact that I don't think this is the old, the, the tried and true old simple binaries. This is something that's, right. that's completely, it's assimilated a lot of that and it's morphed into a third dimension, fourth dimension. Uh, I got, just as I listened to you, I love the dedication to your book, to your wife, Heather. Oh yeah. Which says, who just wanted a simple life and never to have learned that any of this exists. <laughs> yeah, we laugh about that all the time. Actually, we were well, talking about it, that this but morning. It, but now, is this what's being? How much? You know, Donald Trump famously issued a, uh, an order that the Defense Department no longer, other federal agencies no longer, teaching critical race theory. And one of the first things Biden did was reinstituted that. What's being taught? Um, what's being taught is that uh, if it's with critical race theory specifically is that racism is the ordinary state of affairs, the normal logic that underlies how society operates. Okay, so it is, it, the question ceases to be, did racism take place and changes to how did racism manifest in the situation and training people to find the racism in ordinary circumstances or in institutional outcomes based on if, if there's any difference that you can detect whatsoever, whether at the individual level or whether at the group level between races, it's probably racism is the, is the reason. And that's that you learn to give these kind of tortured explanations for how that must be the case. Um, they're also learning, for example, that colorblindness and neutrality uh, are failed experiments that only entrench difference. So they believe that difference already exists. And if that we treat people equally and neutrally in a system in which difference exists, that the differences grow rather than shrink. They genuinely believe that. So people who start out further behind fall further behind by treating them equally. And the people who start out further ahead get further, even further ahead. 
Uh, so that wherever you are versus say, if there was some zero point of absolutely neutral of behind and ahead, whatever that would mean, that people that fall to the, to the negative side of that, that negativity expands. And the people who fall to the positive side of that, that positivity expands if you come at it with a neutral or colorblind approach. That's literally the, the statement from Derek Bell. I just read it again last night from 1992. He's a creator of critical race theory or one of the two. Well, Derek Bell, you talk about, I, this is the time, you're watching the Bill Walton show and I'm here with James Lindsay, who's an extraordinary man who's sort of leading us through this, uh, this uh, I, I, my word, craziness of, uh, of theory. Uh, and I wanna give a promote for his a website, New Discourses, where he's got his uh, podcast and also he's got some great things in there like the encyclopedia for all of this. What, what What's the name of your encyclopedia? Encyclopedia for Social Justice or something where you can it, go on? Well, I said it, it's a critical social justice encyclopedia, but I, I gave it the name Translations from the Wokish, kind of giving a nod to <laughs> Tolkien, who I'm a big fan so, of Tolkien. So if we want to know what this is, we can go on to uh, click on it. I've done it. It's, a, it's extremely interesting. And also you can support James uh, through Patreon. And what are the other ways that people can support your work? Oh. So if you actually go to the website, go to newdiscourses.com, there is a support button and it gives you kind of all the options. I'm 100% crowdfunded, which is a little bit difficult because I operate as though I'm a foundation, <laughs> like a C3, but I'm actually operating a corporation because I need the speed and flexibility of a corporation, but I need to get the information out. So I just decided to break all the rules like usual and not do the sensible thing and put myself in this position where it's actually a bit hard to fund myself, but... I think it's the necessary move. Like, for example, I felt like it was going to be very necessary to be able to talk about the election last year. Um, and if I had gone in the C3 route, I could have severely limited my capacity to do that. And yeah. I understood that that was kind of on the horizon. So I decided to, you know, do the splits. You know, you got that commercial back in the day where John claude Van Damme did the splits between two trucks. I'm like, that's me you know, between a foundation <laughs> and a corporation. And I'm hoping that it works out. Um, but there are options. I'm hundred percent crowdfunded, you know, Patreon, PayPal, subscribe star, YouTube members, and I'm on locals now as well. Okay. Well, we, I, we've subscribed. So we're, we're in. Oh, thank you. It's we're great. in. We're supporting you. Now, the thing that people need to know about you is you're not You've got another dimension that that is wonderful, which is you make fun of this craziness on on campuses. And I think with Peter Bogo, is it Bogosian? Yeah, Bogosian. Uh, you you all wrote some papers to be accepted to acad the academic powers of be for publishing, and with titles like "Human Reactions to Rape Culture" and "Queer Performity Performativity at Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon." Yeah, <laughs> and I, was that and that was accepted uh, uh, to be published. Not only was that accepted, that was given a uh, special recognition for for high quality scholarship by the journal that accepted it, which was the number one journal in its niche field in the number eight or nine, depending on which ranking system you use, journal overall in kind of the discipline. And what's what it's what it was it fit right into what Judith Butler calls raging against heteronormality. Uh, straight white males and what, what what was the what did you say in this cutting through the uh, the academic language what was the topic well I'll start with how we wrote all of the papers that we did in this this project which was that we started with the conclusion we wanted to reach and then figured out a way to get there 
so that we were intentionally writing sophistry. And we wanted to actually kind of prove that you can start with your conclusion and then write the paper to the conclusion and they'll accept this. So the conclusion we started with was that rape culture is a problem and we could fix it if we could train men the way that we train dogs. That's where we started. That was the original goal. And that's where we do end the papers. If we could just, you know, it's, we, we said it's the, the, there's limitations on political feasibility for putting leashes on men or shock collars or whatever, but we can figure out metaphorical ways to copy these things. But what we actually did was we used sort of as either you want to call it as they do an implicit bias test or a Rorschach test or whatever, the idea that we would have people go, we watched, we claimed that we watched people watch dogs involved in what we called humping incidents, dog humping incidents. <laughs> Because they said that we're not, the peer reviewers told us we weren't dogs. So we couldn't say when it's dog rape and when it's dog sex. We don't have the capacity to know because we're not dogs. There's, so no, in the paper, there's no consent. There's no consent. I, yeah, we don't know how to know when dogs consented. So we actually have at the peer reviewers request, I included the sentence or the, the phrase as a human and not as a dog in the paper, you know, and then explained that I can't tell the difference. So what we, we did though, is we watched people watching dogs involved in their humping incidents and how they, we claimed, we didn't do any of this, obviously, and how they reacted to that. And if they got more upset when the dogs, um, we, we trying to track whether men and women had different amounts of, of being angry if the dog sex was, was straight or gay. And so if a dog, if a male dog humped another male dog, we just wrote that, you know, men got really mad about this and that somehow that this this uh, homophobia or whatever that that would translate into uh, in their, their, their theory somehow is indicative of willingness to participate in rape culture. Like there's absolutely no sense behind this whatsoever. And that this, that therefore, you know, it's obvious that we said that dog parks are rape condoning spaces, just like nightclubs. We didn't give any evidence that nightclubs are rape condoning spaces. We just said that they are. And uh, therefore, we need to train men the way that we train dogs uh, in order to combat this problem. And this was not only accepted by the leading journal in feminist geography, as it's known, um, I know you didn't need to know that feminist geography even exists, but the journal was 25 I'm, years old at the time. I, I'm learning all sorts of things. I didn't oh, yeah. Know so this has been a th <laughs> the termites have, as they say, you know, what is it? Dug deeply and dined well or whatever. It, they, there's a lot of that's a 25 year old journal at the time. So that's three years ago. So it's getting closer to its 30th year. Uh, and it, it honored that paper for excellence and scholarship. We even claimed ridiculous things like that. We examined the genitals of 10,000 dogs in three dog parks, <laughs> just three in Portland. It's not even like New York city or it's not like Beijing where there's, you know, lots and millions and millions of people. Um, they were like, Oh, this is great. And in the first draft of the paper, we said, well, we can't show you our data cause we put it in a, uh, shredder and then a compost bin or something, a recycling bin. Like we destroyed our data. So we can't possibly prove that we did this. <laughs> and they were like, Oh, that's okay. No problem. Taking a lead from Hillary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so how did, so, well, I, I, there are so many ways. I mean, this conversation can go 53,000 ways. I want to do, I do want to come back to something in the headlines right now, which is Christy Nome in South Dakota with the, with the trans bill, gender bill, women in sports. And I did a, we did a round table on this yesterday. And in my research, I came across this article in the Wall Street Journal of, of, from a year ago that said uh, the race to end the binary. Mm -hmm. And 
that was all about the race to end the distinction between male and female. That's and right. then just yesterday or this week, CNN put something out. It's one of their one of their reporters said it is not possible to know a person's gender identity at birth. And for some people, the sex listed on their original birth certificate is a misleading way of describing the body they have. Um, how did we get here? What's what's uh, uh, how much trouble do you want to get in? <laughs> I like trouble. Okay. <laughs> Emmett Bill, it was the feminists. That's going to get us in a lot of trouble. The feminists get really upset when you say that they're taking up the issue of what's called gender critical views, critical theory applied to gender, or being critical of the idea that gender is actually linked in a meaningful way to sex. They like to say that gender is socially constructed. So these are social constructionists. Those are there's a slight difference between social constructionists and social constructivists. And I kind of forgot what it is. I think it's tivist is what we're going for, social constructivist. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, I know. And so, <laughs> so they wanted to take the idea that gender is a, that, that the way that, you know, masculinity is understood, what makes a man a man, what makes a woman a woman. You have, for example, in the late 1940s, Simone de Beauvoir and the second sex writing that one is not born, but becomes a woman. So you have this idea that what makes a woman womanly, which now shifts from whatever her biology is to those characteristics that people recognize in the social sphere as having reached womanhood or being truly a woman, that that is largely a social fiction. And in fact, maybe totally a social fiction. And that what they, the gender critical feminists had been doing, or the radical feminists, as they were called before, was picking at that and saying, oh, it's well, it's connected to patriarchy. It's used to control women. It was connected to capitalism. It's used to commodify femininity for purchase, for ma marketing, for advertising, you know. And so they tied it in in a very kind of cynical way, again, these cynical theories. And what they wanted to do, what they wanted to achieve was to deconstruct the idea. And this is why those deconstructive postmodern theories were so alluring to feminists. They wanted to deconstruct the idea that, you know, the way that you happen to be born dictates how you have to act, how you have to present yourself or whatever. And this was largely driven just to be completely fair. You know, there are women who, for whatever set of reasons, uh, were sour on the whole idea of masculinity and femininity, but there were also a lot of lesbians who, kind of genuinely fall outside, especially the, the so-called butch lesbians, they fall outside of, you know, wanting to present or feeling like they should present or feeling that it matches their personality to present as, you know, traditionally feminine. And then they also wanted, of course, to, to blame men for many of the problems in society uh, and say that, that the way that masculinity is constructed leads men to become violent, it leads men to become controlling, it leads men to be domineering or all of these kinds of, you know, very negative traits. And this is why men are, they wanted, they, they went too far and then said, this is why men are more violent. It has nothing to do with the raging levels of testosterone or whatever in their 16 to 25 year old range, which is when most men are most violent and most of them start settling down after that. No, nothing to do with insane levels of hormones. Well, it must which, be are which are observable facts. And we've yes. got data after data, study after study, all observable. Yeah, but no, for them, it was that masculinity is being taught from one generation of men to the next in the wrong way. And so they wanted to decouple what femininity means in relationship to woman and what masculinity means in relationship to men. And then they wanted to just start blurring those concepts of 
of masculine and feminine so that, you know, people who are say a very effeminate man, they're not going to be called out for being that or a very, you know, kind of butch woman are not going to be called out or, or oppressed or, or mocked or whatever for, for, for being that way. So there's this kernel of value there, like just let people be who they are kernel of value, but this unleashed a chain of events that then becomes kind of unstoppable because then you have Judith Butler, for example, famously writing in, in 1990 in gender trouble where she just takes for granted the entire book. I, I actually got asked the other day, how much does she talk about social constructivism in the book? So I looked up the word, I, I, I opened a PDF of the book that I have and I searched the term constructive or construct. I just stopped at construct. So everywhere the, the, the phrase construct appears, it appears something like 256 times in the book. So she just takes it as a given that we that gender is socially constructed and then she starts taking it a step further well what if it's sex is also socially constructed what if sexuality is socially constructed and this is the birth of queer theory in you know 1990 but the thought you know reaches back maybe to 1984 where these ideas were getting tossed around gail rubin's thinking sex meaning thinking more about whether biological sex needs to be brought underneath the same level of criticism has already now bent the arrow away from let's try to decouple masculinity and femininity from male and female. And let's try to ask questions about what masculinity and femininity uh, do to constrain the lives of people who don't want to fit into those norms or that maybe create poisonous patterns like so-called toxic masculinity or so-called, they don't like to talk about toxic femininity, but they will. They usually talk about hegemonic femininity, which is that people are enforcing women to be a particular way. Rather than just asking those kinds of questions and often sometimes useful and often impertinent ways, they started to dip into sex, biological sex. And maybe that the biological sex itself is socially constructed. Then they tacked that onto the birth certificate. Oh, well, that's where the biological sex construction begins. When a doctor who's given authority by the virtue of his degree can step in and say, aha, I look at the genitals and I say, this is a boy. Or I look at the genitals and I say, this is a girl. But they say, well, you know, there are intersex people something like 1.7% of the population has some confusing situation going on. Some, well, I mean, it's fair to say when it's this small and the, the outcomes are what they are, some disorder. I think that there are something like 18 or 19 known uh, genetic level issues. And then there are other ones that are where they actually are, say, XXY chromosomes or something mm -hmm. like this, or XXYY. I forget what they all are. I think there are 18 where people aren't dead two of them are male and female. And then there are hormonal issues. Like if for some reason there was a bathing of testosterone in the, in the, in the womb, sometimes a young or a, a baby girl's clitoris will grow and even develop partially into a, something like a penis. It'll have a hole in it. A urethra might pass through it, et cetera. And so there are these complications. Biology turns out not to be as neat as our clean little categories. And so this is a legitimate thing, but then they've leveraged that to say, see, sex is just made up because it would yeah. be horrible to call this a disorder. It'd be horrible to call this a condition. Those people would feel ostracized and stigmatized. So therefore better to just say, none of this makes any sense. It's all a social construction. It's all in a sense up for grabs. And then you land into this situation now, which is a little bit ironic where you have this say trans lobby or the queer lobby who are full bore sex 
sexuality, gender, all fully socially constructed, all negotiable, all up for grabs, the stuff like we see with transgender in sports, trans woman is a woman, therefore she should be allowed to be in women's sports that has to be validated their identity. And you see the ACLU, all this is a predictable consequence. And who are the people that are fighting against it the most vigorously and angrily? The gender critical feminists who started the whole ball rolling. Their whole thing has turned back around on them. They lost control of the part because most gender critical feminists believe that men and men and women are actual biological stable categories but they've lost control because the deconstructive process has been too powerful. So queer, we had LGBT, mm -hmm. trans, okay, that's people who want a sex change operation and they do that. I think that's right. What is queer? Okay, so queer, eh, trans is a little more complicated than that. But okay, well, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a, because there's I'm a, a difference I'm, between we don't have to get fresh, lost I'm in, in your it. freshman level class right now. I'm just I just actually I'm trying to just keep you out of trouble. Um, <laughs> trans, I, I'm calling you out for your mistake before we all get canceled. Uh, okay, good. There's a difference between <laughs> transsexual and transgender. So anybody who decides, yeah, let's clarify that. that. I, I need, yeah, please. Yeah, okay. So transgender means that you've changed your gender identity. So if you accept that gender somehow floats on top of sex. It is somehow distinct. And I think that there's validity to that, right? Because we can talk about a masculine man or a feminine man or feminine man. We could talk about a manly woman or a very effeminate woman. There is some. And we've all met, if we've all met kids like that. I mean, Sarah sure. grew up with a, grew up with a boy who was, who was definitely in that category. Yeah, and, of course. Uh, the daughter of, I shouldn't say who he is, daughter of a friend of ours, was, she was definitely not, not, a, not, a, not a girl. And so that it's real. It happens. And, sure, of course. Okay. And so if we take for granted that gender does float a little bit above sex, it's a little more complicated than the, the, than the nuts and bolts biology, which I think is not really that controversial then, you know, perhaps you have, as we were just discussing, perhaps you have somebody who's born and identified as a female at birth. This could be a completely correct identification. She's raised to be girlish. And then, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, maybe for sure. It's like, you know, super tomboy. This isn't really fitting. And they decide that they no longer want to identify as the language goes with the binary of boy or girl. So maybe they become non-binary. Maybe they just accept that they're a girl, but they do it in a non-traditional way. So they become gender non-conforming is the term for that. Maybe they uh, decide that they're actually going to try to identify fully as the other. So you have this young woman biologically who decides that they're now a trans man. That's transgender. It means you've changed your gender identity, which may or may not include going through with the changing okay. of of, of you know surgical operations or whatever else it often does but it and hormones and so on but it doesn't always and so there is this i think legitimate distinction there that has to be nuanced out but that's beside the point because we're talking about the q we're talking about queer well but queer. thanks for by the way you have a chapter in your book on this and i again i'm going to highly plug the book uh, uh, cynical theories so it's on amazon it's on kindle it was also helen i think is reading it uh for Audible. So uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, I think anybody's really interested in what's going on has to read this book. Oh, well, so thank queer. You. Let's, let's do, yeah. let's do so, queer. So queer is the rejection of normal as a political project. <laughs> that's what it is. I mean, it's easy to laugh, but that's what it means. So anything that's in the sphere of being considered normal 
is according to a queer theorist, somehow constraining people to have to live up to the expectation to be normal. And they literally, uh, Judith Butler, no, somebody that, that, that was writing off of Judith Butler. So it was not Judith Butler who first said it. She laid out the idea, but the, the term that derived from her idea was that this is a violence of categorization. It is a violence to people to categorize them in terms of their sex or gender or sexuality when that doesn't match themselves. And so queer theory is this idea or being queer or queering something as a verb is to reject the idea that, that stable categories can exist and that those can be considered normal. Uh, the idea that, no, that, that if something is normative in the sense that it's common, then it also carries a moral normativity with it that people are expected to fit into that which is in the normal range and will be ostracized if they fall too far outside of the normal range. They see that as a form of oppression and their activism is therefore to then disrupt the idea of the categories themselves, to blur all of the boundaries, to throw out uh, the idea that normal is anything good and to do so usually through parody, through mockery, through subversion. Mm. Um, you could see something like, I mean, drag is a very early kind of what we used to call gender bending is a very well, early I, I form used to see, I, I, you know, I've, I'm a little older than you are. And I grew up in the sixties. I even did a, did, made the trek to Wood, Woodstock. And in that period, a lot of my friends were hippies and, I don't know that I ever actually was, but I was certainly in that group. And there are a lot of friends that refer to themselves as freaks. And yeah. it was very, it was the term du jour where everybody was very happy to be a freak because they didn't have to fit in. They didn't have to be normal. They didn't have to be bourgeois. Uh, so it's exactly been around, it. it's been That's around, exactly but, now, it. but now it's been, uh, it's turned into something, uh, something, <laughs> New, yeah, new and more powerful. Right. And so the idea, in fact, that we're going to stick the Q on the end of LGBT is yeah. totally an affront, right? Doesn't, so it many blow people, up, doesn't it blow up everything else? I mean, it, it, it's a rejection of the, yeah, it blows up everything else yeah. means woman who is attracted to woman. So you have to have stable categories of woman in order to have L. G is man attracted to man. B is, you know, man or woman attracted to both. So you have to still have those bisexual implies binary. So you still have to have the binary in order to, to so LB and LG and B are all thrown under the bus by the Q. Trans is even thrown under the bus because people, it depends if we're in transgender, you still have to have a stable notion of the original gender to transition away from it. And so Q throws that partially under the bus, but more importantly, most people who consider themselves trans do, do not do so in the sense that they are, oh, I was born a girl and now I'm gender non-conforming. They see it as I was born a girl and now I'm a trans man, which requires, again, a stable category of man toward which you can transition. And I say toward very deliberately here, by the way, it's a deliberate use of the word. You cannot transition to, you can only transition toward. This is part of the uh, the tragedy of what's going on with with the trans narrative is they've confused that you can transition toward male or female, but you cannot transition to you never get there. What's uh, a, 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 could you expand that a little bit? I'm not sure I understand toward versus to. Sure. So imagine that you decided that you're going to now live life as a woman. So you can start dressing differently. You can start taking hormones. You can start uh, you can start undergoing surgeries. You can do whatever you want. But at what point do you ever actually become a woman? You don't. You're still 
a man who is going through different processes of transitioning toward something that stereotypically, or in maybe even in deeper essence, if you're doing enough hormones or whatever is uh, in the category of woman, but you're never going to arrive there. You're never going to, you can't take enough hormones to change your XY to XX. You're not getting there. And you are not ever going to get to the point, I hate to dive into their lived experience thing, but you're never going to get to the point where however old you are, 60 some odd or whatever, where those 60 some odd years that you lived before, where you had the, the, the growing experience of being that other thing, you're never, you never get there. The transition never completes. It is an ongoing process. It never ends. And it is a lie, a dangerous lie to tell people that there's the end of the rainbow in this. It is permanently being on the rainbow instead, which is often very discouraging, very defeating, very uh, challenging for people who try to take this road thinking they're going to get there. And there is no getting there. So the toward and to there is actually quite important. And people don't usually understand the distinction. But regarding the Q, the queer, people also don't understand the queer because they reject normality. This is a big point. They reject things like marriage equality. Queer theorists, or queer activists are against marriage equality, probably even more vigorously than, you know, strong social conservative Christian, you know, whatever the stereotype on the right is that opposes it. Why? Because if, if, if homosexual people can get married and they can just be accepted as society, uh, by society as they are and in their relationships, and that's a very normal thing, it's just another way of being human. Well, all of a sudden it's no longer, it's no longer being a freak. It's no longer being outside. It encourages the, encourages them to act normally instead of radically. It encourages them to, to mesh into what society considers normal rather than to reject the idea that society would consider something normal in the first place. How, how many people self-identify as queer? I don't know. Probably it's on the rise for certain. Uh, until very recently, if we go back five years, I would say very few, probably fewer than 1% or 2%. Um, currently, it's very fashionable. It's sort of like how many kids identi identified as goth when I was in high school. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. This, this seems to be a fashion uh, where people move from freak to goth to queer. Yeah, it it's, is. And it's, it's, it's super not okay, apparently, to say that. I mean, this is, this is you know, the yeah. kind of territory that will get you. There's this, they're, they're calling it a condition, I don't know, rapid onset gender dysphoria, um, where young people in particular, probably for mostly social reasons, are suddenly frequently identifying as that they have gender dysphoria, they're uncomfortable with the gender that they that they have been and inhabit. And uh, they identify as trans or non binary or in some other way, uh, a lot of them become queer activists, or they get seduced into becoming queer activists, because they're convinced that um, the normal state of affairs in society is the problem. The fact that most people are male or female and straight is the problem. Um, and so that's rapidly on the rise. And when I say rapid onset gender dysphoria, we went from the, the, the population of people who identified as trans being a fraction of 1%, something like 0 0.3 or 0 0.7. I can't recall the kind of thing where they add up to <laughs> the next thing together. I confuse them frequently. Um, a very, a fraction of, of 1% to, you know, it, it grew by something like 2,400% or something like this. I mean, it's just many times over multiplied in young women in particular. And so this bears every hallmark of social contagion 
Well, that's you're leading us in an interesting direction. Douglas Murray, I'm sure you know him and read his mm -hmm. book, uh, gets into he's got a subchapter on on uh, social media. How much of this contagion is now a function of our 24/7 social media world, where everybody is online and and uh, information ideas like this can translate very rapidly? A lot, a lot. There are a few reasons why. One is that social media enables people to find people who are kind of like-minded very easily, where you might have been the only person in your high school who felt this way. Yeah. Or maybe there were 10 of you and none of nobody ever spoke about it. So nobody ever knew. Now, you know, you end up on online forums and you're able to, to say these things and you're able to, to meet maybe hundreds of other people. And maybe there are only hundreds of other people who are like you. And it's easy to form a community around being that. A second is that these ideas tend to um, be groomed by groups on social media. I ah. won't hesitate to say that, that there are manipulative people out there who feel more secure in their various beliefs about themselves and about the world when more people believe them and can affirm those beliefs back to them. And so they do have a habit of grooming people toward that, telling, for example, young women, oh, well, you would be a very, you know, wonderful boy, blah, 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 and kind of walking or telling young men, think of how yeah. pretty you would be when you were a woman and sending them kind of propaganda type images and walking them down that. That was a thing on on the platform, the social media platform, Tumblr, which is not very popular any longer for a very long time. Lots of grooming was happening there, even grooming young women into anorexia. There were entire forums built around it. They, Anna, as in like the name, anorexia was a, you know, they'd hashtag it with Anna or something sure. like this. Yeah. And there were all of this kind of grooming is happening. And then there's a third dimension nobody really talks about which is when you are online, when you are on social media, you are not you. I don't care what anybody wants to try to argue. Otherwise, you are actually not you. You are operating through a digital avatar that is just as moldable and changeable as a video game character would be. If you think of one of those video games where you can design your own character and then play, you're in a world where your character on Twitter, I could go on Twitter right now, I could change my picture to a woman, I could change my bio to something different, I could tweet differently, and I could pretend that I'm a woman. And you can actually end up operating in a space where what the psychological impact to you is, is that no, in the space where I spend most of my social time, I am infinitely malleable. I can change myself however I want. I have to lean into an identity that I create. And in real life, your identity is constrained by who you actually are and how other people interact with who you actually are and perceive who you actually are. But in the social media universe, that's not true. You literally can be anybody. I could make a profile as a black woman right now, and I think I could pull it off. And maybe if I spent long enough time, and if, especially if I'm young, thinking, no, I'm building who I am in this character, then you can start to identify with that character. So social media enables that where previous forms of communication interaction never mm -hmm. did. It's a scary, when you said Brave this New is, World at the beginning, it's, it's a very is, scary this is, this is, phenomenon. This is just, this is just astonishing. Um, I want to continue. I would love to get you back at some point to talk some more about this. I've got to wrap it up. Is there, again, this is James, James Lindsay, uh, doctor. What's your doctorate in? Mathematics. Mathematics, a good place to start. Uh, Co-author of Cynical Theories and and founder of the New Courses, New Discourses podcast, which I highly recommend that we we subscribe to. And these are very 
these are like 30 minute uh, pieces on on different things that strike you very easy to listen to and get into some of them some of them like last night I actually recorded one about medical lysenkoism which is a scary concept in and of itself medical uh, what lysenkoism okay. lysenkotrophum lysenko was the soviet agriculturalist who ended up starving tens of millions of people um because of his bad views of agriculture and biology. And I make the argument that this is creeping into medical science and our culture right now. And I read through an essay and explain it. Um, but that one ran an hour and 40. So some of them are closer okay. to two hours. Some of them are about a half an hour. I have a second they, podcast where they tend to be shorter. That's behind yeah. the paywall. James Lindsay only subs, I called it, which is kind of just a humorous nod uh, to a different platform. And it's for subscribers only. So you subscribe in any of the platforms and you can listen. Those tend to range from five minutes up to about, sometimes they hit 30. And those are much more like off the cuff and just, I don't plan for them. I just have an idea and sit down and talk to the microphone for, you know, five to 30 minutes. And people tell me that those are extremely uh, easy to listen to and uh, accessible. Well, you're performing a tremendous service. Thank you. Because you're really <laughs> opening up a world that... Most of us, and I guess I would call myself at this point normal. <laughs> I, I never quite thought of myself that way, but I guess in this world I am. I think we need to understand where this is going. I fall into the category of people are different and you know, that's fine with me, just get over it. Uh, mm -hmm. So long as they're not socially engineering my life in a way that uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't find acceptable. So. But yet all these people seem to have an agenda. And I want to spend some more time with you next time talking about where they think this is going to go. Great. Yeah, we'll do that. James Murray, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening and, and watching. And uh, we'll be talking again soon. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.